it's all about
Finding Them, Keeping Them, Gary McIntosh and Glenn Martin, tell the story of a young man who grew up with a lifelong dream to join the army and, in the words of their slogan, to be all he could be. His first assignment out of boot camp was armed sentry duty, and his commanding officer gave him strict orders. Under no circumstances was he to allow anyone on the base that did not have a special pass. But wouldn't you know it, the very first car to pull up was carrying a general, but no special pass. He saluted, but said, I'm sorry, sir, my orders are not to allow anyone on the base without a pass. The general pulled rank and ordered him to move aside and let him onto the base, but the private took his commanding officer's orders very seriously, and he refused. Naturally infuriating the general who was used to having orders obeyed, so he instructed his driver to ignore this lowly private and drive on. Hearing this, the sentry poked his head in the car window and said politely, I'm new at this, sir. Who do I shoot first, you or your driver? (laughs) You know, it may not always be accompanied by wisdom, but there's much to commend about enthusiasm, being willing to take a stand even in the face of adversity. The word itself, enthusiasm, comes from a Greek word, entheos, which is made up of two Greek words, one meaning, or entos, which means within, the other theos, which means God. God within is the source of our enthusiasm should be a natural byproduct of Christ living in us. I mean, remember what it was like for some of us when we first believed, how we felt, how everything was new and fresh and exciting. We were willing at that time to do things and to take stands and to try things in an effort to get to know God. How's your enthusiasm today? Has it grown grown cold? And that great salvation maybe not seem so great anymore? Another Greek word that sometimes is interpreted or translated enthusiasm is the ontes, which means to boil. As in Romans 12, 11, when Paul said, we are never to be lacking in zeal, but to keep that spiritual fervor, that boiling within us, or the New Living Translation puts it, never be lazy, work hard, and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Perhaps it's more like the comic strip showing an elderly couple driving down the road in their old pickup truck. The husband is leaning against the door, one hand out the window, the other on the wheel as they drive along. The wife is on the other side leaning against her door. The next frame shows a new convertible speeding past them from the opposite direction with a young couple in it, the man driving and the woman snuggled up right next to him. The wife looks over in the next frame and says, Pa, I remember when we used to sit like that, right next to each other. What happened? In the last frame, the husband looks over and says, I ain't moved. 
God hasn't moved. We has when our enthusiasm wanes. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 warns us, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away, so that we don't lose interest. Pay attention. Pay attention to your salvation, to your relationship with God. That word drift away refers to something slipping off, like a ring slipping off a finger, or like being carried away on the current of the ocean. The writer is saying, don't take it for granted. Don't ignore it. Don't simply drift away on the current of your life and a previous commitment to Christ. Maintain your enthusiasm. You know, most people don't suddenly turn away. We drift off slowly by taking God for granted, by becoming inattentive to the things of God, by becoming distracted by other things, like Jesus' description of the seed that fell along the weeds in Mark 4, where he says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. When our salvation loses its excitement, when our attention... It loses our attention. It becomes like a wood rot, eating away its strength. And then when disagreement arises or change occurs, there's no foundation or it's too weak to stay the course. Hebrews continues, For if the message spoken by the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore or neglect, or disregard, or make light of, or be careless of, or fail to pay attention to such a great salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Pay attention, it says. Don't forget how great your salvation is. You know, it's so great. There's really no single word, idea, or figure of speech in Scripture that can do it justice on its own. I mean, think about all the ways it's described in Scripture. It's so great that it is something that happened to us when we first believed. It is by grace you have been saved. Something that's happened in the past. But it's also so great it's something currently going on in our lives. To us who are being saved, Paul says, the cross is the power of God. And it's so great that it's also something that is yet to come, to look forward to. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, Paul said. In other words, it's past, present, and future. But it's more than that. Theologian Ron Sider wrote, We tend to reduce salvation to just forgiveness of our sins. And in the New Testament, salvation does mean that, thank God, but it means a lot more. It also means a new transformed life that's possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it means a new communal existence of the body of believers. So salvation is a lot more than just a new right relationship with God through forgiveness of sins. It is also a new transformed lifestyle that you can see visible in the present body of Christ. But even this doesn't do it justice. It is so great, the Bible says, it's like being born again. So great, it's like being raised from the dead. 
So great, it's like coming out of the deepest darkness into the light of day. So great, it's like having been lost, but now we are found. So great, it's like having been blind, but now we see. So great, it's like having been slaves, but now we are free. It's so great. It's like that old story most of us have heard about the village where the residents were all blind. One day when a man passed through riding on an elephant, a group of the village men cried out asking the rider to let them touch the great beast for though they had heard about elephants, they had never been close to one. Six men approached, each touching a different part of the body. The rider left and the blind men hurried back to share their experience with others and what elephants were like. So the first who had touched the elephant's side said, it is long and narrow and built like a thick wall. Nonsense, shouted the man who had touched the elephant's tusk. It's rather short, round and smooth, but very sharp, like a spear. The third said, who had touched the ear, joined in and said, no, it's nothing like a wall or a spear. An elephant is like a giant leaf made of thick wool carpet and moves when you touch it. I disagree, said the man who had handled the trunk. An elephant is like a large snake. And the fifth man shouted his disapproval. He had touched the leg and said, it's plain that none of you has described the animal accurately. It is round and reaches toward the heaven like a tree. And the sixth man who had been placed on the elephant's back cried out, Can none of you accurately describe an elephant? He's like a gigantic moving mountain. And so the argument was never resolved, and the people of the village still had no idea what an elephant looked like. But who was correct? Who was correct when we liken salvation to being blind, or being slaves, or being dead? As far as each description goes, all of them are correct. But none is complete in itself. Sometimes we can be like those blind blind men, though, aware of only certain aspects of it, certain pieces. We forget how great it truly is, and our understanding is limited. And while there are others to help understand this a little bit briefly, I want to briefly look at four of the major descriptions used in Scripture each taken from everyday life, used to describe salvation and what it is accomplishment. Each one important, but incomplete on its own. And taken together, they give a much more complete and accurate picture of why the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly good news and why Hebrews calls it a great salvation. Each takes sin very seriously, and each emphasizes that because we sin, the cross was necessary. The first one, if my clicker works, is propitiation or atonement. I apologize to those in the back. Apparently, when I transferred computers, it reduced the size of it. But it's a theory about what Christ accomplished, what salvation is. It brings atonement. It is taken from a metaphor that is religious in context. The setting was the shrine or the temple. And the image... Atonement is sacrifice. The issue is wrath or anger, God's anger. The meaning is simply to cover or to appease or to turn aside. You know, throughout the ages, mankind's fear of the unknown has been reflected in fear of God and of bringing their God's anger. What they might do if we displeased Him, 
or if we did something wrong. And so they began offering sacrifices to turn aside their God's anger towards them. His wrath. The idea was that somehow God's anger towards me for sinning could be diverted or deflected into the life of the sacrifice. And that's what Scripture pictures Jesus having done. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Word, who turns aside God's anger, God's wrath. He takes it upon Himself. Romans 3 said God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation, the King James said, through faith in His blood. It could read God presented Jesus as the one who would turn aside His wrath, who would take away our sin through faith in His blood. And so in 1 John 2, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. Where this becomes significant for our salvation is we don't have need to fear God. We don't have need to be fearful of His judgment or His wrath. God has already acted and judged them in Christ on Calvary by taking our place. And so we don't have to live with that fear in our lives. Our great salvation is good news because in love, Christ takes it upon Himself. There is now, Paul says, no condemnation. No need to fear His anger because of our great salvation. The second metaphor, the key word is redemption or ransom. This metaphor was taken from the area of commerce. The setting was the marketplace. The image is purchase. The issue, freedom. And the meaning is that a price has been paid to buy our freedom from sin and from death. The scriptures were written in a day where there was an active slave trade. The marketplace was where the transactions were made. It was the shopping center of the ancient world. And when someone was buying a slave, they would pay a ransom price. They redeemed them from the market. That was the only way to secure their release, by paying the price. So if you think back to the book of Exodus and Israel's escape from Egypt, they were slaves and God came and through Moses He redeemed them from their slavery. Exodus 6.6 says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. We may not want to think we are slaves, but want to think we are free. We're Americans, after all. But Scripture says, We're slaves to our sins and our passions and our loves, lusts, the things that dominate our lives. And to appreciate our great salvation, we have to recognize that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Apart from Him, we have no hope, Scripture says. But in the cross, God pays the price, He buys our freedom, He redeems us. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. On our own, we're powerless, 
to buy our own freedom, to save ourselves. And when we realize this, salvation comes close. Ephesians 2 says, Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But in Christ, you now, who have been far away, have been brought near through his blood. In our salvation, we have hope. Not only do we not have to fear, but we have hope that whatever happens in this life is merely a blip in eternity to God who holds us in His hands because He's paid the price to set us free. Christ crucified paid the price. God loved so much He gave. The third metaphor is the word justification. It's a legal term taken from the courtroom and a trial The issue is guilt or forgiveness. The meaning is to remove guilt or to be declared not guilty. You know, at the end of each trial, the accused would stand before the judge to have the verdict read. And for justice to be done, guilt or innocence must be determined and appropriate actions taken. To let the guilty go free was just as much an injustice as to have the innocent punished. So the picture is we stand before God, guilty of our sin. None can deny it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Justice says we must be punished. We must face the consequences of our action, which Paul says the wages of our sin is death. The verdict before God is we are guilty. Justice demands punishment. But Christ then comes and stands alongside of us stands for us, takes the punishment upon himself. He bears our guilt. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul said, and are justified, are declared not guilty, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just to the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. You know, the whole theme of the book of Romans is that Christ, through his sacrifice, enables us to be declared not guilty. He takes the punishment. We have no need to fear. We have hope. We have a future. Because we are right with God. Christ secures our salvation. Demands were met for justice. We are clean. Therefore, is there, there is no reason to be overwhelmed with guilt. The last metaphor is the word Reconciliation. It's personal. It's taken from the home. The image is family and friends. The issue is relationship. The meaning is to restore or repair a broken relationship, to bring together, to reunite, because as we all know, at times relationships are strained and it can be broken. Alienation does occur. Reconciliation is the process of bringing them back together, to bring healing. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled, was healing, was bringing the world back to himself in Christ by not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, as God, though God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, be made whole to God. For God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where we had been enemies and alienated, we're now adopted and accepted. Our relationship is healed through Christ. Hebrews says, don't forget this great salvation. Don't forget what God has done for you in Christ. How shall you escape if you ignore all that He has done? If you ignore our atonement, that there is no need to fear God because Jesus has turned it aside. If you ignore your redemption, the price has been paid, you are free in Christ. If you ignore your justification, your slate has been wiped clean, you're declared not guilty. If you ignore your reconciliation, that the brokenness between you and God has been fixed. Each one of these states, God will meet you at your point of need. Fear, hopelessness, guilt, isolation are addressed at the cross. So he says, pay attention. Don't drift away. Don't let it, your enthusiasm wane. Let Christ meet you at your point of need. And that's our invitation this morning as we close this time together. God will meet you at your point of need. His salvation is great. It is free, but it is not. It does cost. It cost Him His Son. And so as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask if we could all stand and pray together. Father, as we close together, we thank you for this great salvation that we have in Christ. And for most of us, this is simply a reminder this morning, but how we do need to be reminded. For it's so easy to forget, to get distracted, to get busy, to let that enthusiasm wane because we've heard it before, or we have other things we want to do. But through it all, you stand, seeking to meet us, to embrace us, to welcome us into your fold. And if there is anyone, God, that needs to know the promise of life and what this great salvation really means personally, we ask that you will guide and speak to their heart. Open it, God, to receive you as we sing now and close this worship time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Say hey.